Let's open our Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Our title this morning is taken from the phrase in the middle of verse 4, God sent forth his son. There's been a lot of debate about the exact date of Jesus' birth and whether or not Christians should even celebrate Christmas. Some say we shouldn't celebrate his birth because the early church didn't. Well, the church in the first century was much more concerned about preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ than his birth. They already knew that he was born, and that's why he was born. Eventually, the Western church, based in Rome, began celebrating the Lord's birth on December 25th, and the Eastern church, which was more the, the people located around Israel, the Holy Land, uh, chose to celebrate his birth on January 6th. It was Hippolytus, who was an early church father in Rome, who lived from 170 to 235 A.D., uh, that some of the archaeologists in the 16th century discovered uh, his, his statue sitting upon a chair, Hippolytus, and on the sides of the chair were these words, the Genesis, or speaking of the conception of Christ, occurred on Passover, April 2nd, 2 B.C. That would put the birth of Christ in late December or early January. Uh, John Chrysostom, one of the uh, early church fathers as well, lived in the 4th century. He was known as the golden-tongued orator. Uh, he said that the 25th of December was the correct date for Christ's birth, and from that point on, both Eastern and Western churches observed Christmas on the 25th of December. Another argument used against that December or January date for the birth of Christ is what Luke says when he says the angels appeared to the shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks by night. And if you're from Michigan, you say, how could that happen in January or December? Uh, some say that in, in, in this climate here, it would, it would have been too rainy or too cold. No one would be out in that kind of weather watching their sheep. But the climate in Israel is similar to that in California. The average temperature in Bethlehem during the month of December is from a low of 45 degrees to a high of 57 degrees Fahrenheit. According to one of the professors at uh, the uh, Hebrew University, he was in charge of animal breeding. His name was uh, uh, Professor Epstein. But he said the most common sheep in Israel are the Owasi breed that kept, are kept in the open fields and Bedouin shepherds commonly keep them outdoor 365 days a year. Another reason that they would have been keeping the sheep year-round is that these lambs were the ones that were used in the sacrifice at the temple, and those sacrifices took place all year-round. We can't say absolutely with certainty that December 25th was the exact day of Christ's birth. But the early church did indeed celebrate his birth sometime between that December 25th and January 6th. And there's really no good reason to change our celebration of his birth from the, this time of year. And so I'm, I'm glad that we can celebrate the Lord's birth and I'm glad that we can do it on December 25th. One Christian author says Christmas commemorates a divine event and a divine person. The miraculous birth of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Unlike most of our holidays, Christmas is not a celebration of an event strictly from human history that commemorates a human achievement 
or recognizes a national milestone. An authentic celebration of Christmas honors the most wonderful and divine accomplishments. It recognizes that the eternal sovereign God came to earth as a human being to live a righteous life among his people and then to die as a perfect sacrifice to deliver from the wrath of God all who repent and believe. As I spent some time in Galatians chapter 4 this week, I, I realized that we can say with certainty when Jesus came. The answer is found in Galatians 4.4. 4. And you can tell other people this. He came in the fullness of time. <laughs> in these seven verses, we learn much more than when Jesus came. These verses tell us how he came, why he came, and the blessings that are ours because he came. The answer to that question, why he came, is found in verse 5. He came to redeem us so that we could be his adopted sons. Galatians is often referred to as a short Romans because it deals with the doctrine of justification by faith. It was also called the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation. Galatians, if you go back to chapter 3 and look at verses 2 and 3, Paul is asking the believers if they've been saved by, by the law or by faith. And the answer is obvious, we're saved by faith. And he follows up by saying, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? Are you that foolish to think that since you are saved by faith, that somehow through your own works you can continue living the Christian life? You're made perfect, made mature. Again, the answer is obviously no. We're saved by faith and not works. We live by faith and not works. He's not addressing the Jews who are putting themselves back under the Old Testament law of Moses after salvation. Paul is writing to these people in Galatia who are Gentiles. They were per being persuaded by Judaizers who were there to revert to a man-centered religion of works. And so... Just two points that we'll look at this morning in verses uh, 1 through 3. We see an illustration and then an application in 4, four through 7. So the first point, God sent forth his son so that we don't have to serve sin anymore. Galatians chapter 4, let's read verses 1 through 3. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. But he is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Paul uses this illustration to contrast uh, the, the role of a son and that of a servant. That illustration would have been easily understood by people who lived in the Roman Empire. There were as many as 60 million slaves at the time of this writing. A third of the population were, were slaves. And in the household, there were children who were members of the family, and there were also these children born into families of slaves or servants. And Paul uses this illustration to show how when Jesus paid the price to redeem a person from their sin, he also adopted them into his own family, and he gave them all the blessings of the inheritance. Before a child reached a certain age, he had the same obligations as a servant, one who is 
Same age, only he was born into the, the house of a slave. He was an heir, but he wasn't old enough to claim his inheritance. He's still an infant. The word for child in Galatians 4.1 is nepeos, and it refers to one who's still immature. He hasn't come of age yet. Paul contrasts that immature child with a, a, a word he uses twice in chapter 3, huios, or son. We see it in chapter 3, verse 7, where it's called the children of Abraham, the sons of Abraham. And in chapter 3, verse 26, the children or the sons of God. So we have those two words that are used. This immature child, the napias, is to be Lord of all. Did you see that at the end of verse 1? He's the one who's going to inherit everything. He has the right by birth. But he has to wait. He can't exercise that ownership of everything because he's still too young. He's a napias. So as long as he's under the, this certain age, he has the same responsibilities of obedience as a servant has. Both the servant and the son are under subjection, verse 2 tells us, to tutors and governors. Tutors weren't just teachers, as we would think of a tutor today, but they were also guardians of a child. And then governors, those are the ones who are managers of the property. So he, he has the right to that inheritance, but he hasn't achieved it yet because of his age, so the tutors and governors are over him. They may have been servants themselves, but they were still over the son of the household. But when the son reaches a certain age, he inherits a portion or all of the estate. By Roman law, the father would determine the age of when he thought his son had come to that point in his life where he could be considered mature. And some people we know of today, they're 23 years old, probably still wouldn't pass that test. But here, generally in Rome, it was around the age of 12 or 13. And he would have a ceremony to mark that occasion. The child would put on the toga virilis, the, 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 the toga of manhood. Until then, he wore a toga with stripes on it. And then it was going to be the solid white toga that he would wear. And on that day, he was acknowledged as the legal heir. Now, Paul uses this illustration to explain what it was like to be under the Old Testament law. In verse 3, even so we. He includes himself in the categories of Jews who were in bondage under the Old Testament law. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Again, Paul is an Israelite. He submitted himself to the law of Moses. But these Galatians, again, were mostly Gentiles. They'd never been under the law. But they're being pressured by the Judaizers to keep that law. The Judaizers said to the Galatian Christians, okay, well, we'll accept the fact that, you, that you're saved by trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, but faith isn't enough. You need to be obedient to the laws that God gave us in the Old Testament. When Paul talks about being in bondage under the elements of the world, he was re referring to Either any sin that enslaves us, that is, worldly attitudes of our own hearts, we're in bondage to those, or the pride of keeping a set of rules and regulations to earn God's favor. Look at the way he describes what it was like when we were children. 
we were in bondage. So sin and religious pride of legalism will enslave you. He describes that bondage under the law in Galatians 3.23. Back in that chapter, before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. That phrase, kept under, is is you're, you're under someone else's guard as a sentinel. You're guarded. You're shut up. The doors are, are, are securely locked. So you're in prison. We're, in, we're kept in bondage, the Bible says, under the elements of the world. That word elements is an interesting word. It means to place side by side in a row. And it refers to how a child might learn his ABCs. Line upon line. When you graduate from high school or college, you don't go back to elementary school to learn your ABCs all over again. Wiersbe says, legalism then is not a step toward maturity, it is a step back into childhood. By now we ought to be moving on in our Christian growth. Colossians chapter 2 verses 20, and 20, 20 through 22 Paul is specifying those kinds of things that, were, that they were going back to instead of growing in their spiritual lives. They included the Old Testament dietary restrictions, uh, touching dead things, unclean things. And it reminds them that these restrictions of touch not, taste not, handle not, were the commandments and doctrines of men. Isn't it interesting how people come up with things that they think, this is how you should live the Christian life. Don't do this, do this, and then you'll be all set. We all want to have that kind of a a regulatory uh, statute of of what we're supposed to do in in our own lives. But he says that these are the doctrines of men, and they have an outward show of wisdom and asceticism or self neglect. And aren't there people like that? Well, you. You don't know what I've given up for Christ. You don't know what, what I do for him. It's an outward show of wisdom and, and self-neglect. Well, let's move on to the second portion in verses 4 through 7. That was the illustration, now the application. God sent forth his son so that we could be his children. But when the fullness of the time was come... God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ." Verse 4 tells us that God sent his son in the fullness of the time. Literally, when the full number of days had arrived. This was God's appointed time. Just like that father in the Roman family would say, this is the time that you'll be a man. This is what God appointed. So God chose the time of his son's incarnation of his ministry, earthly ministry. 
of his death on the cross for our redemption. This was the exact time in history that God said, now is the appointed time. By the way, God has an appointed time for his second advent as well. And just as the prophecies said that Jesus would come and they were fulfilled when he was born in Bethlehem, so too the prophecies of the second advent, Jesus is coming again, they will be literally fulfilled. The return, not the rapture, but the return, according to Matthew 24, 29, will be immediately after the tribulation. In Matthew 24, 36, same chapter, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. <laughs> the Father is going to say, it's appointed time, now is the time. It will be God's appointed time to judge the earth. But now is the time for man to repent. Paul preached this truth in Athens, the Sermon on Mars Hill, in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. And the, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, that is Christ, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. This was God's appointed time. There was a fullness to this time. When God sent forth the Son, it was the perfect time for Christ to come to earth. The Romans had conquered nations. There was a semblance of, of government in control and peace among those nations. There was a protection to those who were Roman citizens, and that came into play, especially in Paul's life. Remember when the Roman soldiers uh, secured Paul when he was being torn apart by the mob? They, they bound Paul, and they were getting ready to scourge him, these Roman soldiers. And Paul said, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's a Roman citizen, uncondemned? In Acts twenty-two twenty-nine, 29, it says, the chief captain also was afraid after he knew that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. It was against the law even to bind him. And so that was, that was a protective thing. It was a, a good thing that Paul was a Roman citizen for that. It was also a time when the roads that the Romans built, unlike Michigan roads, some of them still lasting today with, without the potholes, but a system of roads made it possible to get the gospel to the entire Roman Empire, the known world. The apostles walked on those roads as they went around on their missionary journeys. There is, a, there is a mile marker, or at least the center, the navel of Rome, where there was, a, there was a, 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 a statue that was made of gold, and it was ground zero. It was the point of, of where all the other milestones throughout the Roman Empire marked how far it was to that particular monument. And that's the phrase that we get, all roads lead to Rome. The Roman Empire had a unified language. Latin was the trade language, the lingua franca of the day. Uh, when Pilate wrote his sign over the cross of Jesus, he wrote King of the Jews in Hebrew, in Greek, and in Latin. It was the language everyone would understand. And, and so the gospel could go into an area where linguistic problem wasn't a problem to translate. 
The Old Testament prophets had been telling about the Messiah. The children of Israel had returned from Babylon. They were tired of being slaves because of their idolatry. And so they were forsaking idolatry and coming back to a, a, a one God feeling in their, in their hearts. The stage was set by God. This was the right time for Jesus to come in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son, the next phrase. The fact that God sent his son tells us that the son is eternal. Jesus Christ forever was and forever will be. Isaiah 9, 6, the prophet said, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's specific. He didn't say a child was given and a son was born. He was always the son of God. There was never a time when Jesus didn't exist. In John 1, 1 through 3, it begins, uh, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. And so you go all the way back to creation, and he still was. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The sending of the Son is a doctrine called the procession. The Father sent the Son into the world. God also sent the Holy Spirit into the world. And that doctrine of procession of the Son doesn't mean that the Son and the Spirit are, are not equal with God the Father, that they are somehow less than him because he sent them. Now, there's one God in three persons, but there's a truth that God the Father sent the Son into the world, and the Son was obedient to the Father's will in order to accomplish our salvation. It's also true that the Father sent the Spirit into the world to dwell in believers when Jesus returned to heaven. In John 8, 26, Jesus said, I have many things to say to judge you, but he that sent me is true. John 17, 18, as thou hast sent me into the world. This is his high priestly prayer in John 17. And again, in verse 21, 23, and 25, it's that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Because if they believed that, then they would know he is indeed the Son of God. He is divine. The word is used here. Uh, sent forth is uh, ek apostello. He was sent out. He was sent forth. He was sent away. And so we understand in, in this particular uh, verse that he was sent out from heaven to come to earth. He was sent out with a message. In fact, he is the message. He is the Lagos, the Word of God. And he was sent on a mission. He came to die for our sins. The Father sent him out away from heaven to stoop to earth, to be born in a manger, to live a, a perfect sinless life, to die the sacrificial death that would give us forgiveness of sins and into eternity in heaven. What a wonderful provision of redemption. And when he saves us, he sends us out to continue what he started. John 20, 21, Jesus said, As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. The first word in this, the, the, that phrase is a different verb than it is that he sends us. The first one was that the Father sent him on an initial mission to accomplish salvation. And now he sends us, not on another mission that is different than his. We continue with that same message that Jesus is the one who died to save. The next phrase tells us 
that the Son of Man became, or the, the Son became a man. And we have that in the phrase, made of a woman. This is the virgin birth of Christ. Uh, the word made here doesn't mean that he was created at that point. He was never created. As we said, he existed in eternity past. He is God. Philippians 2, 6, and 7, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And that we have the, the humiliation, the incarnation of Christ. And so that word being, he was existing in the form of God. He was God. He says, is it really that important that we believe in a virgin birth? Yes, it is. Why? Because the Bible says it. We had it in our reading this morning in Matthew 1.18. The birth of Jesus was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. He had to be born a virgin to fulfill the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. He would be the seed of the woman that would destroy the serpent. He had to be born a virgin to, prov uh, to provide a sinless sacrifice in human flesh. Hebrews 4.15 says, He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he became sin for us who knew no sin, that is, he knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The last phrase in verse 4 made under the law. This tells us that Jesus was born in a Jewish home. He grew up obedient to the law. Amazing when you think he was the lawgiver. He's the one who wrote the law for Israel. And now he's perfect in obeying that law. In Matthew 5:17, Jesus said, "Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets." I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And when he lived that perfect life, he fulfilled the law. It was complete. There's nothing more that needs to be done. And when he died on the cross for us, he fulfilled those demands. When he saves us, he transfers that righteousness to our account. And we can stand and, and sing that the law is satisfied. Verse 5 begins, To redeem them that were under the law. The word redeem here is a wonderful word, ek agorazo. The agora was the marketplace. And the picture here is that uh, a person goes into the marketplace of sin, and he sees someone there, and he may, pays the purchase price, and then takes him out of the marketplace of sin. That's what Jesus did when he redeemed us. He came and he paid the price, and he took us out of the sin's marketplace. What wonderful redemption. Under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, since these were mostly saved Gentiles. He's not referring to the penalty of the law, but the bondage of trying to please God through good works. The result of that redemption is given in the last phrase of verse 5, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And the blessings of adoption are listed in verses 6 and 7. Because ye are sons... God hath sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Based on that adoption, God sends the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of his Son into our hearts. 
And we're now privileged to call him Father, Abba. Abba is the Aramaic for Father. It's it's an easy word to say. It's one of the, the first things that a child would learn. It was a familiar word around the household of small children addressing their dad. We're no longer servants. We are now sons, huias, of age, those who can inherit, one of full age. As sons, we are heirs of God through Christ. When you look through this and think of our redemption, we have to remember that God did it all. It was his plan. He redeemed us. He's the one who adopted us into his family. He's the one who sent his spirit into our hearts. And he's the one who's given us the inheritance. Bible Knowledge Commentary reads, All the enjoyments and privileges of a mature son in the family belong to those who have entered into the benefits of Christ's redemptive work. The Christmas message emphasizes God's gift of salvation for fallen man. He's the one who sent his son. He sent him at just the right time in history. He sent him robed in human flesh. He sent him with a divine purpose to redeem sinners. He sent him so that we could be adopted into his family, enjoy the riches of the inheritance as sons. We're going to sing in a moment in closing... A Child of the King, it's number 186 in your hymnal. We'll just sing the first and the third verses. But if you're not his child today, he's invited you to come to him and be saved. Redemptive, redemption's work has already been finished. It's accomplished. All you have to do is appropriate, appropriate that work of his on the cross by faith. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Don't wait anymore. Trust him today. Father, we are so thankful for the virgin birth, for the sinless life, for the sacrificial death of our Savior. We thank you that you have redeemed us, that you have given us an inheritance, and all the blessings of that. May we not just look forward to that inheritance where we'll be forever with our Lord, And may we look around us and see those who have been invited but have not responded. And I pray that you would help our lives to be such examples of what you have done by your grace, that they would see that and glorify our Father which is in heaven and come to him in repentant faith. Give us boldness in our witness. Help us as we go through this time of this week, this season, to realize that you came to die. And I pray that you'll help us to be faithful to you until you come again. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.